And welcome back to another off-season edition of the Limited Upside Podcast. Today we did the Portland Trailblazers. We had Chris Lucia of the SB Nation community, Blazers Edge, one of our most passionate and involved communities. So it's always good to hear from the pulse of the fan base, if you will. Chris won't take credit for that, but he did a great job of it. Um, Let's see, we talked about a lot of stuff today. All about the new roster changes, Evan Turner, which there really weren't too many roster changes. Evan Turner, we got into Dame, we got into McCollum, Stotts, all those good things. You'll really like it. But before you listen to it, please subscribe, rate, review, all those good things. Wherever you get this podcast, if that's SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, we're there. Download it, please. We appreciate that. But more than anything, write those reviews. Those reviews are important. They help us get up in the podcast. More people can find us. And then we take your questions. You can always send those questions to MikePreda at SBNation.com. That's his email. You can also hit us up on Twitter at SBN, at Limited underscore Upside, and at EpiBen. We take those questions. They help fuel the podcast. They help move it along. We always appreciate them. So send them our way. I think you guys are really going to like this one. Blazers are a fun and up-and-coming team. They were the darlings of the NBA last year. What do they have in store? We get into that. Enjoy the Limited Upside Podcast. Shut up and sit down. All right, the Portland Trailblazers. We've got Chris Lucia of Blazers Edge. And Chris, I, I could forgive Portland fans for maybe being a little sort of with their heads stuck up after their predicted doom for them last year and they said won 44 games and made the playoffs. Why were they so successful last year? Why did they surprise the experts? Well, there's, in my opinion, there's there's a convergence of a number of different factors here that you really have to look at. Uh, and I, I think... Maybe some of these these elements of the Blazers' success last season are things that uh, a lot of Blazer fans don't necessarily want to give too much credit to. So I don't want to give them too much credit, but I definitely want to acknowledge, you know, a lot of, you know, there was a lot of internal development for the Blazers, but there was also a handful of external factors as well. So you look at, excuse me, you see the Memphis Grizzlies struggled with injuries all last season. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans uh, Pelicans struggled with injuries. Hmm. Phoenix Suns had a drop off there. The Dallas Mavericks didn't play as well as everybody expected. The Sacramento Kings didn't take that step in the next direction that a lot of people uh, expected. And then you get to the playoffs. Uh, Los Angeles Clippers have Chris Paul hurt. JJ Redick is limping. Uh, Blake Griffin's hurt. Second round evens. Uh, league MVP Steph Curry uh, isn't playing. Um, Draymond Green is getting himself technicals and having <laughs> issues with the refs. And there's all kinds of you know, whatever chemistry issues were there. So I don't want to give too much credit to the external factors there, but I definitely, you know, want to acknowledge them. And and also I want to say that the Blazers did experience a great deal of internal development last season. And a lot of those guys uh, played incredibly well and a lot better than a lot of people expected. And I would say, uh, you know, we could talk about individuals, uh, you know, as we get there, but I think most of the overarching credit here, I would personally give to Terry Stotts, uh, and his coaching and his ability to really put players in positions to where they can play to their skill sets and kind of mask their weaknesses as much as possible and really squeeze the most that you can out of a player's individual talents. I feel like that's called the uh, Aminu corollary, right? Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? <laughs> to be honest, 
I was a I was a big skeptic of that uh, hmm. going into last season because you know Aminu had played for Rick Carlisle for a couple of sure. seasons there, and he was shooting you know something like twenty eight twenty nine. It was I think it was thirty sub thirty percent from behind the arc in Dallas, and so I thought you know if Al Farouk Aminu can't do that under one of the best coaches in the league in terms of setting up his players then what makes us think that Terry Stotts is going to be able to wring that little extra bit out of him? Mm. And, and somehow, Al Farouk exceeded everybody's expectations and shot like 36% from uh, outside last year. This was, a, this was a strategy that they put forth last summer is when they lost Aldridge, they made a lot of these sort of gambles and bets on younger players that had bounced around a little bit. You talk about Aminu, Ed Davis is another one. Mo Harkless is another one. Um, Mason Plumley, although he'd only been on one team. Uh, why? And yet, and all those guys sort of overachieved, like you said. I mean, you, you credit Stotts. So, you know, what do you think Stotts is, was doing to kind of bring the potential out of some of these players? So if, if you look at his offense, and I think there's kind of a, maybe a misperception here that that they're one of the most, you know, heavy teams in the league in terms of ball movement. And if you actually look at the amount of passes per game that they make, you know, they're somewhere in the middle of the pack. But if you look at player movement, you see guys moving all the time off the ball, setting screens, Mm. backdoor cuts. Uh, A guy like Harkless is really good at that. You know, just finding that seam in the defense. And so Terry Stotts is finding ways to make the, make the defense they're focusing mostly on Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. So right. if you're looking at the amount of attention that the opposing teams are giving to Damian and CJ, you can s- slide a guy there like a Minu, like a Gerald mm-hmm. Henderson last season into the corner there and find him a good open shot. Cause we all know uh, NBA players are much more likely to hit shots when they're wide open. And Terry Stott <laughs> succeeds at putting players in that position. Yeah, there was a really firm pecking order on the team. Is you had those two guards, and what they were, the Blazers are really good at is that because those two guards can kind of shoot and score from anywhere, you have to kind of trap them a lot. Otherwise, you risk kind of either of those guys snaking around and creating the, this great shot. Obviously, if you lay back too far, they're going to shoot threes in your face. And then when they got trapped, they just the Blazers were just aligned in such a really smart way to move and take advantage of the four on three. It was almost you know, Junior Warriors-esque in the way they played. And so it's interesting now that they had a lot of guys that fit well into that system and they kind of were able to get to fit well. I mean, one of the one of the more interesting things is that, that leads to what their summer was, which I think they had a unique challenge ahead of them, which is they had this mix that just functioned really well together and all these guys got more out of each other. But they also kind of were in this one summer where they had to make you know, a good move before they were naturally going to get over the cap and be locked in. And, but you don't want to make the wrong move because you don't want to mess with that chemistry yet. You have to make some move. And what they (laughs) ended up coming away with was a lot of money for Evan Turner for Evan Turner. And so I guess we'll just lead right into that. Like what? So, but yeah, I mean, not just Evan Turner. There's, there's there are other parts to this, right? I think you have to go back three years and you were kind of alluding to the the contractual obligations they were going to be met with. Uh, and the money that needed to be spent. But just to have the type of season they had last year to build the chemistry, which was evident. You mentioned baby warriors. It did flow like that, and there was that hierarchy at the guards. Um, But when you go back 
just a season before that, this was a totally different franchise. That's a Flalo, Batum, Aldridge, Robin Lopez, yeah. Steve Blake. It's it's an older, different, veteran-laden, established players team. Don't mind my dog barking. She does this once in every three episodes. Um, <laughs> LS. Um, so you had a totally different team. Last year, Hierarchy gets established for one season, is very successful, aside from potentially some of the things you mentioned with other teams having some external things that may have helped Portland. I think I do think that by the end of the season, they were one of the, I don't know, the fourth or fifth best teams in the Western Conference. By the way, they were playing, um, all things being equal. Um, and so then you fast forward, they wanted to keep things somewhat similar by making that little step. Then we can get into the fact that Evan Turner's really the big piece. And also Festus Azili um, joining the, the, the bunch here too, which is kind of an interesting piece of the Warriors. So where does the, to get full circle here, mm-hmm. where does the Blazers fan base, we're standing on the ground in Portland, where they stand right now on Evan Turner? He's kind of a polarizing free agent. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> I, I want to be careful here. Uh, Speak for I'm, all of them. <laughs> when I'm speaking for the fans here, because as as you guys may or may not know doing national shows, uh, the Blazers fan base is passionate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they have a vested interest in their guys. If it, it, When a player signs and and the crimson red and or crimson silver and black i mean they are blazers for life more or less unless your name is raymond felton so <laughs> the, the, there's a great Sorry, deal man. it can al- it can almost border on defensiveness at times and and i can fall into this as well i mean i've written you know articles before talking about how awesome damian lillard is and I, and i gloss over occasionally you know, his defensive shortcomings. And I'll go back and I'll read something I wrote about Dame a year later, thinking like, why did I not criticize Damien as much as maybe he deserved to be criticized at the time for that defense? And it's mm-hmm. it's because, you know, just as fans, being in this microcosm in Portland, we just, we just really appreciate the guys uh, who play for the Blazers. And when you have a dude like, you know, Dame, who just embodies the city, you look at just, you know, for instance, look at his number, right? He chose zero coming out of college to represent Oakland, where he's from, Ogden, where he went to school, and then Oregon, where Portland is. And that's, he had never spent any time in Portland and immediately chose his number to reflect, you know, his appreciation for the city and that fan base. So uh, there, there's a very visceral attachment uh, to the team, I would say. And so, and so do you feel like that rub is going to also work on Evan Turner? Okay, so yeah, to get <laughs> into Evan Turner here because, because that was that, a good answer about Dame Lillard, and there's yeah. no doubt about it. Having said that, Evan Turner, uh, different player, different person, also needs the ball in his hands equally as much as Dame. Yeah, Lillard. yeah, and that's 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 an interesting issue, and, and a lot of that bleeds over down to all the players, and even a newly signed guy like Evan Turner. Uh, we're, we're, when they signed him. That was one of those things where you go, okay, you're going into July 1st and you're saying, what are what, what do the Blazers want in free agency? What what do they need to address? Rim protection was probably the most important thing there. And so you say, all right, they'll get a sit down with Hassan Whiteside. That might become a realistic possibility. If not, there's guys like Dwight Howard out there. If not him and uh, Jan Mahimi on down the line, that's what you're expecting. And then you see you know, Hassan Whiteside uh, is going to be not really taking any offers after you know whatever time he went to bed that night. We hadn't heard anything about the Blazers. You hear right. about Chandler Parsons being the next guy 
on that list and all of a sudden you're thinking of uh, what's what's the plan here right. guys and then Chandler Parsons turned that down and they immediately turn around from that and bring in Evan freaking Turner yeah that was definitely a very surprising signing I, I that was not something that I expected I was thinking of possible Evan Turner destinations I don't think Portland was on the list it, it's bonkers that the fit is on the face of it it's really I'm, I'm just going to use a euphemism here and call it interesting I would say yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here's a question from uh, our our one of our tweeters, uh, N. O. Carter, who has, I believe, tweeted the show before. So, I mean, he asks, like, is Evan Turner going to start small forward? Uh, or did it, is Mo Harkless going to start small forward? I know you're an Alan Crabb fan. You know, there are just a lot of yeah. guys that fit in. Like, where, where do you see Evan Turner fitting into the team, like, rotation-wise? So, with Evan Turner, and there was some scuttlebutt around town, and I may have been the one who started this unfounded rumor on, on my own podcast, I'm not sure, but that Evan Turner was uh, promised the starting position with Portland. So, that was kind of an assumption that we had, you know, for the couple of weeks after that signing happened until I think Terry Stotts or Neil O'Shea actually addressed it in a press conference and said there was no, you know, they don't know who's going to be starting at small forward. So either they went back on that or it was an unfounded rumor in the first place. So nevertheless, there's a lot of confusion probably about, about how Evan Turner fits here. And you guys are absolutely right. This guy needs the ball in his hand. I mean, he doesn't dribble it into the ground like some guys, but you know, he, he definitely needs the ball in his hand to be effective. He doesn't have a reliable outside shot. And we saw mm-hmm. what Stotts did with guys like Gerald Henderson and Aminu last year. You, you can't assume that's going to happen to every single mediocre or worse shooter who comes into Portland, that they're all of a sudden Terry Stotts is going to be able to give them the golden touch there and, and put them in a position to hit 36%. That's just not any kind of a guarantee. I think it's more likely to happen in, in a place like Portland or a place like Dallas with Carlisle, yeah. but no guarantee there. So you look at Evan Turner. Uh, he's a slasher, likes to get to the basket. He's not an amazing finisher, uh, he's a good enough. He's a competent finisher. He can set up his teammates. But look at Damon CJ. Like that's a lot of those strengths overlap with a lot of what Damon yeah. CJ's strengths are. So I, I have a slightly different scouting report on Evan Turner, uh, which you might actually like, to be honest. Um, which is that you know he's comfortable playing a Mark Jackson-ish point guard called post from the post um, with a back end type ball handling game. I mean, he's more comfortable going, you know, half spin moves on smaller guards and, and facilitating, I think um, given that you guys have some good slashers like an Aminu or Plumley or Leonard, big guys who could finish at the rim and then three point shooters who can spread off of him and, you know, use him if you will, if he's going to serve a purpose he, in terms of going to the basket, he's an extremely negative athlete and finishes pretty poorly. Uh, he's got like a I little like 12 footer that he's developed. Yeah, his, exactly. His, his game is basically getting to his range, which he knows he can just turn and shoot. Cause he has no lift at all. He can't jump. And that's cause his back injuries from college, you know, Partially, you know, a broken uh, vertebrae at Ohio State, and then it's some lower back issues with the Sixers for a tiny bit. But you know, I think his game could mature into the right player. To be honest, it could be you know more of a, a mini Boris Diaw, um, and for for those purposes, if you will. But because he has that ability, he's a good passer. He does see the but, court. But how does that play yeah. off of Dame and CJ? It like, doesn't. You can't... It doesn't. So this is why I would be very surprised if he starts because I sure I, second unit. Yeah. To me, like the the real function that you could see, and I agree, it's sort of a curious fit. The real mm. function is that last year, though the Blazers sort of lineups were able to split Dame. They kind of compensated by splitting Lillard and CJ up a lot, and so there was a, always at least one of them on the floor. 
there is still a bit of a dearth of playmaking on the second unit, and I wonder if they were thinking ahead and saying, you know, okay, so our, our basic strategy worked last year with one playmaker on the floor at all times, but teams, especially you saw the Clippers doing this in the playoffs before their injuries happened, you take away those two guys, and there weren't a lot of other players that could really take advantage. You know, over the course of the regular season, and in their great stretch in January and February, there were, but as the season went on, it was very much more of a two-man show. So I wonder what I think this may just give them a little bit more playmaking flexibility sort of to play where he doesn't play with both of them, but he plays with with one of them uh, and you can sort of unlock a few more things. There's more. I mean, you certainly can say that if you assume that most of his minutes are going to be with only one of them, he has capabilities that other players in the roster do not have. For sure. Right. And and, and Terry Stotts, you know, is staggering the lineup there, like you said, so that, it's kind of there's kind of a, a bit of an overlap there when Dame and CJ are on the court. You know, with with Evan Turner, I don't I don't see how he fits in there as as third ball handler per se, so much mm-hmm. as uh, kind of second unit kind of spark plug setting up other guys sure. on the second unit, maybe. Yeah, I think I think that's more what I was describing, but not in in you know in tandem with those two. I think the better start at small forward there is either Harkless or Crab. Um, it's certainly Harkless. I would, I, yeah. in, my, in my opinion, it's Harkless. Because if you look at Alan Crab, he's he can come off screens and he can score a lot. I mean, he was, I believe he was the third leading scorer for the Blazers last season. So this guy is a scorer if he has guys around him who can set him up. Now, that's obviously going to be the case with Damon CJ, but you also want to have you know, there's not a ton of firepower in terms of outside shooting off the bench for the Blazers, depending on mm-hmm. how healthy everyone is next year. So you need to put some of that shooting uh, in in the excuse me in the reserve unit there. Mo Harkless hasn't proven uh, thus far in his career to be a reliable out shooter. Neither has Evan Turner. But if you put a guy like Evan Turner with a guy like Evan Crab and start Harkless and have Evan Turner and Crab on that second unit setting each other up. Uh, I'm playing off of each other. I think that there is kind of the tandem you're going to be looking at for scoring off the bench for the Blazers. And that's the role I see mostly for Evan Turner, setting up guys in the se- in the second unit there. I, I, it's interesting because I think you could argue that – you think you could argue that I would actually start Crab because a starting unit with Aminu and Harkless at the forward positions, we saw in the playoffs that mm-hmm. that's kind of a bricklaying unit in a lot of cases. I know Aminu has improved in shot his shot, but – and then you can play Myers Leonard to give more shooting in the second unit. So I mean that's sort of the that's sort of the nut of the sort of intrigue of the Blazers right there is that they just have so many good rotation players and it's not quite clear how they're going to play all of them and how they're going to play all of them. Let's unpack those big men, Mike. I want you can you know tell me what you think about them because they have um, not just Aminu and Plumlee and Leonard and Ed Davis and Harkless and Azili and Noah Vonley. Uh, and then Alan Crabb and Alan Crabb were going to call yeah. a small forward. That would make what eight, yeah, <laughs> you know, forward centers. So yeah. let's let's talk about that rotation quickly before we talk about uh, the you know before we give Lillard and McCollum their their proper due. Um, where where does that rotation end up? What, what what are we foreseeing with this, Chris? Oh my goodness. Okay, so like I said, with the Evan Turner thing being this eternal question that we've had all summer, uh, you know, that's kind of the question with the front court here. I brought up. Uh, sometime in July, the quote-unquote logjam in the front court, and that is exactly what it looks like the Blazers are dealing with here. I mean, you had Noah Vonley 
for example, this is a you know third year player. He was a number nine pick. The Blazers traded Nick Batum, and he was a huge part of that package. You know, they don't they had Gerald Henderson for a year, so Noah Vonley is kind of the the crown jewel of that trade package that they got for Nick Batum, and he started. I, I want to say in the in the upper fifties or low sixties of games last year, playing 10, 15 minutes a night. This year, I don't even see a place for Noah Vonley to play at all. I feel like garbage time is 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 his cap this year in terms of playing time. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean that that's a guy who 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 played in uh, almost eighty all eighty two games last season is not even going to be in the rotation. So that just goes to show how crazy this front court log jam is. Log jam is, and if you look at the skill sets of these guys, it is just you. If you combine them all, you know, three of those guys into one player. If you took their all their strengths, you would have one of the most dominant front court players in the NBA. But unfortunately, <laughs> I've been thinking about trying to do that scientifically for three years now, man. <laughs> I really need that. Um, yeah, I, the other thing is that. There's a lot of talk about Aminu is really only a four this year because not only yeah. do they have so many big guys, but they also spent seventeen million on Evan Turner and how much it's about the same on Alan Crabb and you know fourteen million or was it twelve million on Mo Harkless and they're just log jams everywhere. So I, I'm not quite. I agree that there's no way Noah Vonley plays, but to me, I, I think it's also going to be interesting to see. You know, Mason Plumley had a pretty good year last year, uh, but he's certainly limited, especially with his way, his ability to score around the basket. You saw again that getting exposed a bit in the Clippers series, and Azili, he if he, he offers the rim protection, but definitely not the offensive kind of ball skills that you need in a Stotts offense. Well, is he even healthy? I mean, how healthy is he going to be? I mean, yeah. that's another question. I mean, that you know, in a way, that may solve the problem a little bit. And it should be rooting for and, this. Yeah, and Ed Davis was just such a key player for them last year, and I thought maybe should have played more, and now he's getting squeezed, and and they could use Meyer Leonard shooting as well. So, and and if Aminu is only playing the four this year, I mean, at this uh, they're just bad. This is sort of again the upshot with where this team is is that they have so many options, they're almost have too many options, and they've spent a lot of money to keep all of them together, and it's going to be a real challenge for Terry Stoss to figure out what the right combinations are. What if the answer had been, has been on the roster the entire summer, Mike? What if it was your old friend Jake Lehman? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we, we had some bet about Jake Lehman being a first-round draft pick, and I believe uh, he was picked in the second round. Yeah, was he I think picked? it was he, number he was picked, 45, right? 35, okay. 45. The Blazers traded for a, a, a semi-late second-rounder for him. He, he is, in theory... Like a Chase Budinger, I'm gonna do the exact parallel that you guys are looking for. He's like a he's a Chase Budinger, but better. He yeah. could be better. Well, if but he's, he's drafted he's, by any other team, maybe. <laughs> I don't yeah, even right? know if, he's if not, the he's Blazers have a spot right? for him. Yeah, so he's going to be probably going to the D League. Um, this Con- I, Connington, he's on the team too, right? The dude from Notre Dame. I yeah, I, I honestly wouldn't be like super confident in any the Blazers sending anybody to the D League in terms of player development. They used to have the the one to one ratio where they operated the Boise uh, the Idaho Stampede, yeah. and then they switched to you know partial ownership or something along those lines. They 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 took a step back in that relationship with the Stampede for one season, and then they just kind of severed ties altogether. So now they're kind of part of uh, there's one other team that they're a part of that's you know ten or eleven other NBA teams use to develop oh. their players. So the Blazers 
have never really used the D League in terms of development, uh, only in terms of like injury, like bringing a guy back slowly sure, from injury, sure, but sure. Uh, not in terms of development. Fair, fair. Okay, well, we should move on now to the, I don't know, the best player on the team who we've only spoken about for like a matter of seconds so far. Let's talk about Damian Lillard. Right. Let's place him in the NBA hierarchy, right? Let's let's try to have that that <laughs> conversation for a sec because we have our national yeah. perspective and it's high. Like, we, we are big fans of him here. Um, but I'm interested always to hear what the what the people on the ground in each city feel about their best players. And you've already put us in check saying how passionate the Blazers fan base <laughs> is about their guys. And I understand that. I'm for that too. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this team superstar. And then we'll talk about McCollum after that because we'll be remiss. He's on that borderline. He's getting there close, mm-hmm. uh, quickly, I should say, uh, ever closer. So where do you find Lillard in that hierarchy of NBA point guards? Where is okay. he sitting for you? Dame. All right. So let's say... I'm going to say there's an at least one untouchable there, and that's going to be Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably you could say head and shoulders, and you could say right below him in the hierarchy there is Chris Paul. And then you kind of go a little bit below that hierarchy, and you get guys like Dame, uh, mm-hmm. Kyrie Irving, John Wall, Mike Conley, uh, Kyle, Kyle La- Russ. I mean, obviously, Russ Westbrook. I, I mean, there's so many good point guards. I left one of the best of them out. So Sure, sure. I think that there's that hierarchy there of Steph above everybody, then Chris yeah. Paul and Russ Westbrook, like you guys mentioned, and then somewhere down there below, because you have guys who are incredibly effective at what they do, but there is a weakness to their game. And in Damian Lillard's case, I think it's it's going to be, uh, pretty observationally speaking, it's easy to see that the defense is something he struggles with. You could certainly say that uh, defensively he's the worst of that bunch, and that's a big problem. I also think that while he's a great three-point shooter, I think if he got a little bit better, he could jump up. But the one thing in his favor that I think really carried this team and is that his ability to culture set, his ability to kind of set yep. uh, this closeness and this expectation, I think – you know, a lot of what we have attributed sort of the success of the team so far last year was on Stotts and his ability to put players in the right position. I don't think we should overlook Lillard's ability to kind of foster camaraderie, foster a work ethic, foster a, a, a place where when he goes out for a few games, they still have the infrastructure in order to kind of thrive, foster a sense where, you know, on some teams, Mo Harkless might be upset that he's not playing Lillard's in his ear. He holds it together and Harkless is a key contributor by the end of the season. You know, there's, it's cliche, but there's no easy way to place a value on something like that. I think when you compare him to some of the guys uh, in that kind of area last year, you know, there's really only Chris Paul that I think measures up to that level of kind of franchise impact. And, when you lose a player as good as LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, that's ultimately what carries you, I think, to another level. And that, to me, is what Lillard really showed me last year. Now, if that reflected into, you know, maybe giving a little bit more of an effort defensively, that would probably be nice. But all in all, I, you know, that's the thing that kind of blows you away when you think about Lillard and his place in this group is that he might be the very best leader of that bunch. Do you think that maybe there was some addition to by subtraction um... – Shout out to Seth Rosenthal because they got rid of Aaron Aflalo and that probably helped them uh, considerably. <laughs> There's a, there is a, there is an anti Aaron Aflalo bounce. Just you guys will you you probably know what I'm talking about Blazers fans. Uh, but go, go on go on with your point, sir. Oh, we only we only had him for 26 games, so we're not super <laughs> intimately familiar with uh, Aaron Aflalo and all. His, and he was hurt for it most of the right. playoffs that year, yeah. so it was it was kind of a bummer the way that 
entire season ended up in everything for a follow. <laughs> but back, sorry, bring it up. Back to Dame and the defense because you you brought up effort, Mike, and and that's something that I don't really know what Damian Lillard's effort level is. I don't I, I don't see him in practice. I don't see what he's working on. Uh, you know, there's times where you're watching him in a game, and he seems to get maybe lost sometimes. I'm not I'm not really sure how that would be framed, but definitely not playing incredibly effective defense. But the guy is, you know, 6'3", being generous in shoes. He's pretty diminutive in size. It's pretty easy to screen a guy like that out of a play. So if if he could, I don't think it's a lack of effort. I think it's it's mostly kind of instincts. I mean, he came from the Big Sky Conference in college where he wasn't playing against the greatest competition. And coming to the NBA, that's an incredible jump. I mean, He's a small guy. I don't think he's ever going to be an above-average defender. But I, I, at this point, I think really it's kind of, excuse me, his experience mostly and probably the fact that he's just so small. And it's yep. just going to be incredibly – there's a huge learning curve for point guards in this in this league to play defense. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean to suggest that he doesn't try on defense. I think you're right. It's more physical. But now that you brought it up, I think it's a very relevant follow-up question to be asked is that when you bring in McCollum now to this mix as well, yeah. McCollum and Lillard are the foundation of the team and everything they do offensively. They're the foundation of the culture. But they're also – I mean, I know Blazers fans have thought a lot about this, and I know this is sort of a little bit of putting the cart before the horse because we have to see how good this Blazers mix is at all, and we shouldn't forget all the special things that duo does, but that is not a great defensive duo. I mean, is there is oh, that something uh, yeah. that you're even keeping an eye on at this point, or you just want to see how they how they mesh for more for more time? Are you kidding me? Do we, do we keep an eye on the defense of the Blazers' <laughs> backcourt? I mean, I know Blazers fans keep an eye on everything, but um, (laughs) (laughs) that that is okay. So anytime I'm thinking about roster construction for this team and we thought about it a lot leading up to this offseason, that was that was where every single thought experiment I had about how the Blazers should go about their summer. That's where it ended was, okay, yeah, but how is this going to affect the defensive uh, backcourt of Dame and CJ because you have two guys who are are six three being generous. I mean, they're as bulky as you can get at that size. I would say. I mean, they're not real thin. They do have some meat on their bones, but they're not huge guys. And so, yeah, that combination that makes it difficult. And it makes it difficult to cross match. It makes it difficult to switch. It makes it difficult to hide you know, one or the other guy and, and maybe put Aminu, for example, or Harkless on maybe a really effective point guard on the other team, because then, you know, you might be putting Damian Lillard on somebody who's six foot eight. I mean, Dame plays really good post defense, but is that really something to hang your hat on as a point guard? I don't know. It depends on the opposition, maybe against like Chris Paul some days when he's trying to go into like mini soldier mode in the post. But, um, I think you're in, you hit a couple interesting points here. I think you have to we have to separate. I know Prada always puts about equal value between that defense and offense. Um, you know, it depends, right? Sure. I think the thing that we kind of glossed over was and and Prady hit on the head was that that mentality, that culture setting. Um, who in that hierarchy of point guards has that trait? Forget the physical offense, defense. Um, who of those point guards exudes that mentality? It's probably just Chris Paul. That's it, yeah. You know, I guess we'll see. I mean, but I, 
I, I would just say in general, I, I think it's right to look at like that backcourt and say, well, who are they going to guard? But right. I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that all the stuff that they do do and how it outweighs that. Like, so for example, obviously they are both great culture setters and hard workers, and but there's also just that both can get you a shot. They can bail you out of any shot clock problem. Both can shoot and finish and pass. And also just you don't need a backup point guard really because both can play point guard in one guard lineups. You know, that's a huge advantage you get from having those two. So yeah, they don't they're not a great defensive pairing, but I mean I think Blazers fans that are worried about the long term viability of it have gotta be careful what they wish for because you know, the balance sheet tips so far in their favor. You know, I think in ways they're just the foundation of their very success last year was the ability to get two to draw to them and pass out. You know, that's incredibly valuable in a way that I, I don't think Blazers fans should lose sight of. I would not be in a rush, and they're not going to rush, to break that duo up because they're both under contract for the next four years. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I struggle sometimes when I'm thinking about the defense of the Blazers' backcourt. I struggle sometimes in being, I guess, I don't know, pragmatic about it sometimes. I'm, I, I'm not really sure how to frame it, but I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, and, and you kind of alluded to this, look at everything they're doing on the offensive end, and they're doing this, playing 35, 36 minutes a piece a night. Uh, each of them is pretty much handling all the ball handling when they're on on the floor. They're they're doing quite a bit for this Blazers offense. So to ask them to go full bore on both ends of the court, uh, you know, all things considered, uh, I, I don't know how realistic that is even to really expect that in the future. To be completely honest, and maybe having Evan Turner there will allow them to exert more effort because they won't have to handle the ball as much. You know, so maybe that's the logic of the Evan Turner signing. <laughs> right, Figured but I, th- I kind of feel like with with the Evan Turner thing. Okay, so you play him, and, and Nate Duncan actually kind of uh, from the Dunked On podcast kind of brought this up when he was. Uh, on our Blazers Edge podcast, he was uh, he was saying like you know honestly I don't really think Evan Turner is I, I, my problem with him he's not that great of a player and Kevin Pelton <laughs> from ESPN said the same thing he's like he's just kind of a mediocre player and agreed agreed you know his his strength here is is the mid range and and handling the ball but if he can't shoot from outside. Even if you have Damon CJ on the court with him or just one of them, you could still sag off of him a little bit and let him back guys down. That's not necessarily an efficient offense of having Evan Turner back smaller guys down or shooting mid-range shots. I mean, so they might uh, a lot of teams in general tend to funnel guys toward the mid-range anyway. That might be what they prefer, having Evan Turner jack up uh, uncontested mid-range shots. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think that there's very much something to that. You know, certainly getting Chandler Parsons for the same amount of money would have been a lot better. Oh, uh, I'm I with just, you on that one. I just think that I, I'm trying to see what the Blazers are thinking with this. And I, I just think that having the flexibility to do another way of scoring, whether it's more efficient or not, and may have a domino effect. And we'll see if it's a positive one. You know, it's certainly that certainly was an eyebrow-raising signing uh, when it happened. Uh, so we'll see. I, it should be noted as well, though, that, that the Blazers have had success with similar sort of this ve- vagabond players are kind of coming to their team. Aminu is one. You saw that all last summer. You know, maybe maybe they look at Evan Turner as another guy like that. So we'll see. You know, I, I'm trying to see where they're coming from on this one because this definitely was a little bizarre when I first heard of it. Well, so these players are all locked in. Uh, we kind of have alluded to that a few times now. Um, 
Mm-hmm. What's the long-term growth potential of this core? Is this a playoff team year in and year out? You mentioned there were some external things last year. Is this a team that could compete to win the Western Conference at some point in the next? The window looks like, what, three to five years, um, judging by the contract. So wh- where does this team go from a successful season last year? The bar has been set high, yeah. maybe potentially too high. You know, I, I honestly, every season, I feel like I tend to underestimate you know, what the Blazers are going to do. That 54-win seasons, I think I predicted like 47 wins. Hmm. And then, you know, the year after they won 51, I was, I probably predicted like 60 that year. I was completely off on that one. And then, (laughs) you know, the next year I predicted 32 and they go out and do 44. Like, I am done second-guessing Terry Stotts in general. Like, I do (laughs) think that he is going to squeeze as much as is possible out of this lineup as he possibly can. And I do think that the second round is not unrealistic. I don't think 50 wins is unrealistic if things break for them you know, the way that a lot of Blazer fans hope. But you have to look at last season. Now, we mentioned all these external injuries. The Blazers, their worst loss to injury last season was Myers Leonard, who missed something along the lines of 21 games. Yep. Right? Yep. So the majority of the other guys played in 70-plus games, and, and, and that includes their core. Uh, Dame suffered. He got tired toward the end of the season. It was very apparent in the playoffs, especially the way that the Clippers, when they were healthy, were playing him and and the Golden State Warriors when they were playing him. He couldn't do everything. And the plantar fasciitis that he'd been kind of suffering through all season kind of started to rear its head. So, you know, if we're if we're saying the Blazers can get to the second round with this this core of talent that they have every year, that, that that may be true. But by the time they get there, Dame you know, maybe too tired to produce at the level that he produced at all season. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point with the injuries and that could go south as well. I, I think this is the same. This is the biggest problem I would have with their summer is not, I agree that like, look, they could overachieve and they could, they're counting on internal development and it's, it predictions have been all off on this team for a while. And we're off last year. Like I said, Blazers fans have the right to kind of be skeptical of what, you know, people are thinking the team will be, but you just look at that team. They spent championship level money, and they don't. I don't think have a championship level roster. They have one of yeah. those kind of like, <laughs> you know, second round and like maybe conference finals if they get the right breaks sort of rosters. And, <laughs> and they spent so much money, and I, they maybe they had no other choice. It would have been better to just spend the money than to lose players, you know. And that was sort of the dilemma they were in. But you know, you look at now they're really locked in unless they somehow can cobble together some of these other players to get a real star. But, you know, that's sort of the challenge they have is that they had this magical sort of chemistry alchemy that they had last year. And that's sort of what their organization is based on. They're not a free agent destination, as I think this summer proved. But, (laughs) you know, but they can't just be totally locked in like this, I think, if they want to be like a championship contender. So, you know, may just have to enjoy that they're going to be just a really fun team and a really good team for Al, but maybe not sort of a team that's going to be competing for the ring every single year. Maybe that's uh, maybe I shouldn't be so skeptical. I mean, the Blazers have overcome a lot of you know predictions that have proven to be pessimistic, but that's what I see right now with this roster. To to address to address the money here real quick. I mean, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of an interesting scenario because you look at the amount of money that they gave dudes like Evan Turner and crab and an unhealthy Festus Azili and not being able to even get a guy like Chandler Parsons to, to sign a, a max contract there. I mean, so 
last it was a foregone conclusion that Dame's max extension was going to happen. That's twenty five million right there that they're not going to have to work with. Um, you know, once he was eligible for that, then CJ McCollum. Uh, it was kind of a foregone conclusion as well that he was going to be a max extension player. They ended up signing that this summer for less, slightly less than the max. So it's it's roughly twenty six million a year, but it's not for the percentage of the cap. So that could end up being a really valuable contract in the future. So they, Neil O'Shea did do what he had to do, and and part of that overachieving last season was kind of what put them in this position because it was like, well. You you brought in all these guys and kind of threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And it happened to be that everything kind of stuck last mm-hmm. season and they really outperformed the ex- expectations. So it's like, you know, Mo Harkless comes back for four years, 40 million. Myers Leonard signs for for uh, four years, 40 million. Alan Crabb, the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, that, <laughs> that I, I don't understand why the Brooklyn Nets signed him to that deal and that player friendly contract with the the team option on the last year and the 15 percent trade kicker and then throw in the price i mean it, if alan crab gets traded he's making upwards of 83 million on that yeah, contract and that that's just you know and that's that's the apparently we're gonna have to take a wait and see approach and see what happens with the salary cap in the future but the way i'm seeing it uh with neil o'shea and the blazers front office was they were just saying you know, this is the opportunity cost. To, we, it's hard to get talent in Portland unless you draft it or trade for it. And, and you guys said as much earlier. So the guys that you do get to come to Portland and outperform expectations, you want to keep them around. And sometimes the opportunity cost of that in a place like Portland is, is paying them a little bit more to be there. So it could shake out that it ends up everybody continues on this upward trajectory curve. And, you know, I, with the right pieces, I wouldn't say... Uh, competing in the Western Conference Finals, maybe you know, flirting with the 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 championship by the end of Dame's contract, depending on who they bring in and depending on how things shake out for some other teams atop the you know Western Conference. I I, I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility, but y- you're absolutely right. It looks the path there looks incredibly murky at this point, and I think there's some criticism to be had there for for the way the summer went. Yeah. Yeah, and we should probably get to the predictions and we make you uh, go on the record with your <laughs> season win <laughs> totals and uh, and, and where they will and where the season will end and how it will end. Um, so Vegas has them set at forty six and a half. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, the initial season over under uh, projection. Just to give you some context, the Jazz are at forty seven and a half. The Oklahoma City Thunder are at forty five. Uh-huh. And a half. Okay, so I just th- I thought that was interesting in terms of the West. Um, they yeah, won forty four games division. last year, right? Yeah, they are right. Exactly, and they won forty four games last year. So this is two and a half game improvement, which would go in the face of some of your earlier external comments, which may have taken this forty four down to maybe what, like forty, forty two. They uh, yeah, they also very barely had a positive point differential. So that's right. They were less than a point. Less than a point. A little closer to five hundred team. My point okay. differential. Now they also were bad early on, and they came alive later. So who knows how much that means? But <laughs> as we we set we're setting this up real nice here. So Chris, where do you think they're going to land this year? Uh, see, I don't want I don't want to speak out of both sides of my mouth too much here. We, you know, and, and place too much emphasis on the external factors because I, I I do really appreciate Terry Sots and everything he did, and I really think there is something special there, and all the you know the off the court kind of intangible stuff that Dame 
and CJ bring with the leadership, I mean, that that means something. And, and the culture sure. that Neil O'Shea and Terry Stotts and, and Paul Allen and, and the rest of the staff have instilled there and all the players have embraced, that does absolutely have to count for something. Uh, and we mentioned that earlier. So, you know, I, I think 44 wins last season was quite the overachievement. Now, this season... All things considered, my goodness, you guys. I, if I have to put a freaking number on it, I guess I'll say I'll say forty nine. Okay, I can I can deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I would say mid forties is probably about right. I think Vegas sort of has you over under kind of on lockdown. You know, the the real interesting thing will be is what if they do win in the mid forties, or what if they are headed to that? Will that feel like an underachievement? Or an, I think right. that's where the danger yeah. the danger comes into play, where it's. You know, last year was you don't want to kind of suffer the fate that like the 2014 Suns and the Bucks last year to the point where they they do so well the previous year that expectations get elevated. Now I don't think that's going to happen to them. I think I think they're going to be right there in the four or five game. I, I like Utah a little bit better, but I think Portland's going to be right there. I think they're better than Oklahoma City. I think they're better than Port than uh, than Houston. You know, I I think 47 wins is about right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like him. Totally. I like him up there too. I think they're in that. I think I had him at forty-eight. Uh, that's what I've been going through these over over unders in my on a Excel here for a few days, and I had that as one of the nice picks. Uh, I also think Portland has an advantage too. Where if you look at the teams who would be kind of at the back end of them, they are all aging out teams, whereas Portland's aging into their prime. So you can create a separation gap there between like maybe Dallas, Grizzlies, the Rockets aren't young. Utah is going to be fighting for the with these spots. Hey, maybe the Kings will. I'm just kidding, um, but uh, sorry, <laughs> right? I'm just yeah. No, I know, right? Poor Kings. <laughs> they somehow come up in every podcast in some capacity. Um, but and, the and I have yeah. Well, the Sixers because obviously, um, but. Uh, the Sixers are funny because they have all these small um, pieces that touch all these other teams. But like, for example, having too many big men, whatever. All, but it's always in a negative sense. So that's why we well, can it's, always say. That's because uh, I won 10 games last year, Ben. Table set. Hey, <laughs> 27 and a half is the prediction. That'd be a 17 and a half. <laughs> hey, trust the process, you know. Yeah, I mean, Ben Simmons is 249 pounds of muscle now. You hear about that, Prada? All right, all right. I don't want to. Hi- I don't want to hijack the podcast at all. Um, my, I, my voice has gained five pounds of muscle since we uh, started podcasting <laughs> yeah, this series. That's right. That's right. Um, nice. Well, this is a good. Uh, again, we all have these higher expectations for a young team who's up and coming. This is a fun podcast where we like to actually enjoy talking about a team on the rise. And, and uh, I don't know who do we have next. What's what's the next? Detroit. Uh, next Detroit? Ooh, another good one. All right. Well, I'm look, looking forward for the Detroit podcast. We have some. Some Detroit basketball fans in the Vox Media family. Um, but today was a good podcast. We were uh, very privileged to have uh, Blazers Edge, his uh, very own Chris Lucia here. Chris, thanks so much for joining us, man. Absolutely. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's fun. And we should mention, too, that Chris uh, has his own podcast. He is the, uh, yeah, well, I guess it's not really his own podcast. He's the host <laughs> of the Blazers Edge podcast. <laughs> Which okay. has been going on for a long time, and is is if you're a Blazers yes. fan, you don't listen. I'm not quite sure what you're doing. So, uh, Blazers Edge podcast is just what it's called. Um, you should go check that out. Chris is the host of it, and he does a great job. Thank awesome. you. Yeah. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on again. Prada, as always, you know a lot about every team, man. It makes me um, it makes my job easier to uh, play off of you. So, thanks for that, Prada, and everyone else. Until next time, Limited Upside Podcast. Yeah.